this criminal confessed about 30 homicides in the 70s. He mostly kidnapped, raped, and murdered young women and girls. Today, this is the part one of the American serial killer Ted Bundy. This is Cases of the Crimes. Hey everyone. Well, this is going to be the last case before I'm going to take a break from this podcast. But don't worry, there's going to be more cases to be opened and look over. So, for now, we'll have to deal with this final case before I have to take a break. I don't know how long the break is going to be, but I'll come back, okay? I'll come back someday, and I'm just gonna make very, very excited because there's gonna be a lot filming. But I have to film this like in daytime because I don't want to film this in nighttime because it's very scary, okay? If I read this in nighttime, it's probably get scary and I won't be able to sleep at that night. So, <laughs> I mean, that seems a little crazy to me. Okay, so, as you're heard from the intro we talk about the American serial killer I never touch upon this one so this is where I end up here Ted Bundy yeah killing mostly on the women and young girls they're like ages 18 and over or maybe younger than that in the 70s my goodness Alright, well, I already told you this is the part one of it. So, here's, here's, here's going to be the layout of what's going to be looked like. Alright, so, we'll be talking about the early life. As always, I always have to do the early life of his. So, we get down to the little details here. And then we're talking about how he got the first two of those series. He got a couple of series of murders happening over there. On those seven states, okay? Remember, we have the seven states to deal with. Before that, we got Washington, the Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. You have those five, Colorado, you have five of those states coming in. And in part two, we'll talk about Florida, okay? There's some Florida trials floating around but that will be a part two and then we'll talk about the arrests the first time that he got arrested in the first trial he had done and then we'll talk about how did he escape how he got escape from prison and such and that's kinda wanna chop off for that into part one because this is a two-part case okay and in part two, the rest of it, it's going to be somewhere around, somewhere around Florida, and then the death rows, the confessions, the death of it. And then there's one thing called modus, modus operandi. Okay? You probably, you will probably hear that one later. Well, that's part two, okay? And then we're talking about the victims, some of the artifacts that they found. 
pathology. Okay, pathology. Okay. So like I said, part one is gonna be the early lives, the murders, the first two series of it. And then he got arrested and has the first trial and then escapes. The day he got escaped. That's just part one. And that's what I'm gonna do right now. And then the part two will be Florida, the death row, that's the victims and the artifacts. That's part two. Okay? Alright, so now we're dealing right now with this part one of this case. So this is case 10, by the way. Alright? Alright, let's go. Case 10 Ted Bundy. His real, okay, his real name is Theodore Robert Cowell. Okay. He was born on November 24th, 1946. And then we have his, he was, and then we found a 22-year-old and unmarried Eleanor Louise Cowell. She gave birth to Ted when she was 22 years old. Okay, and then his father, my not known who the father of it, so get out. But some say some of the accounts that they have, we don't know who the identity of his father of it. Okay. Some of the accounts they have for his certificate signs that his father was like a salesman and heir for the veteran named Lloyd Marshall. And according to some other sources they have it, they said the father was unknown. It was listed as unknown, so we have no idea there. But thanks to Louis. She claimed that she has been seduced by a war veteran named Jack Worthington. And the King County Sheriff's Office has enlisted that one as the father in the files. So, yeah. We have... Let's go. We're going to go over some of the stuff here. Some of the family members have their suspicions that Bundy... I've been far to Luis's own violent, abusive father, jeez, Samuel Cowell. Some of the families, they knew the, who the father or who Ted's father was. Samuel Cowell, he is such a, an abusive father. Like, but there's no evidence for that to support so you're sticking you're so you're yeah you're sticking up with yeah you definitely stick to Jack Worf Jack Worthington they are not married and they yeah they have a sexual intercourse to them and she gave birth Louis gave birth to Ted okay and then for the first three years of his life when he was around three years old he lived in Philadelphia, home of his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. 
and they raised him as their son to avoid social stigma that accompanied the birth outside the wedlock. And I have no idea what a wedlock for that one. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say. Okay. So, wedlock is marriage. Okay, so wedlock is the same. It's the same name for marriage. So, the family, friends, even young Ted, all of them, they were told that his grandparents were actually, I mean, were his parents. And that his mother was his older sister. Okay, there's some little confusion to this family. And then he discovered the truth. He found out the truth. Although he had some recollection of this one, he told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him bastard. Why? Who would call, who would call somebody a bastard and then given the copy of this birth certificate? But he told all the biographers, Stephen McKeod and Hugh Ainsworth, that he found the certificate himself. I don't know what it is. But according to Anne Rule, she's the biographer and true crime writer. Who knew what who knew Bundy is? Who knew Ted? And they believe that he did not found out until '69, when he located his birth, original birth record in Vermont, somewhere down Flounder, Vermont. Yeah, because he really was born in Burlington, Vermont, as so to speak. So he has that original record, and he expressed a resentment toward his mother for. Never talking about who the real father, and just leave him to discover that, and discover the parents, unlocking that family tree just for himself, so that he'll have to find out for himself when he's getting older or something like that. So that's just far as far as we know, like who the father is, but it's just there's some doubts, there's some unknown things. In some of the interviews, uh, he spoke to his grand, but so Ted spoke to his grandparents and told Rule that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. But though all of them are in quotes, so he just wanted to be respected, or he identified with. Not such. But in but in 1987, okay. However, he and the other families told the attorneys that Samuel Cowell was a bully, tyrannical bully, and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, Jews. I really hate. I really hate this guy. And Bee's wife and a family dog. Holy crap! And swung neighbor cats by their tails. Oh my god. What a such. What a such a douchebag. He threw Louise's youngest and Julia down a flight of stairs for oversleep. And then he spoke aloud to unseen presences for them. And then he once flew to a violent range when the question of Buttons was raised. God, what a. What an abusive father! 
years. Like, I have no idea how to think, but Samuel oh, just be around Hayden as full of hatred and just like to be violent or sometimes. Yeah. That I'm referring to him as an abusive violent bastard. That's what I'm definitely calling it. Okay. And then he described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who periodically went electroconvulsive therapy for depression. Oh, jeez. And feared to leave their house toward the end of her life. He doesn't want to leave the She doesn't want to leave the her house. That would definitely kill herself off there. And then he occasionally exhibited certain behavior at an early age. Ooh, I think he's I think he has a little problem with himself. Okay. Um and she Julia recalled and she recalled that awakening from the nap to find herself surrounded by knives And he was standing by the bed, smiling. Oh god, what a creep. So she well so she woke up and realizes that why are there knives over here? And then you just stand there smiling at her like she's a no. Realizing that he is a goddamn monster. What the hell's wrong with him? I mean this ba I mean yeah I know I understand the behavior a bit but oh my god. Let's scare the scare the hell out of me. Jeez. Okay. Alright. In in the nineteen fifties, uh she changed her name. Louise has changed her name to from Cowell to Nelson. Okay, so in the urging of the multiple family members, she left Philadelphia with her son to live with her cousins Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. And by in fifty one, she met Johnny Culpepper Bundy. Okay. He was a hospital cook and an adult singles night at Tacoma's first Methodist church. And then later on they married. And Johnny Bunnett formally adopted Ted. No, just to get them out of the way or something. And they both convinced four children of their own. So they wanted to have... Well, conceive, sorry. They conceived four children of their own. So they have four kids. And although Johnny trying to include Ted in camp trips and activities... So, but Ted remained distant. So, it's a silent. I mean, so we wanted to stay silent, but uh, there's some deadly things happening. So. And he claimed to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't the real father. Okay, it wasn't very bright and didn't make much money. How? Why? Why is Ted doing call him like he was poor and he's dumb and it's not the real father? Okay. 
it, this it doesn't make sense, right? It really doesn't make sense. And then he had a different recollection of the coma. And then when he talked to McCotton Einsworth, he described this that how he roamed the neighborhood, picking through trash barrels, and such as some pictures of a naked woman. Oh come on! At an early age, really? At an early age. Okay. And when he spoke to Paul Nelson, mentioned how he perused detective magazines, crime novels. In true crime documentaries for stories that sex involve sexual violence. Particularly when the stories were illustrated with some pictures of a dead or mean bodies. Like he likes to look over some of the novels and magazines, some true crime documentaries that involved like a sexual violence and then he focusedly looked at the dead body. Like, you can't unsee it. And in a letter to Rule and Rule, he said that he, quote, never ever read back Detective Magazine's in Shudder at the Thought, end quote, that anyone would. He never ever read in those and then Shudder on that stuff. I think he do read it sometimes, but. Doesn't doesn't want to. And in the conversation with McCod, he described how he would consume some of the large quantities of alcohol and canvas the community lay at night in search of undressed windows where he could look at the woman undressing. Such a perv. He's such a perv. He just wanted to you know. Having some alcohol and then look at the look at the undraped windows just so he could see woman just undressing herself and then dressing herself she and then she'll have and he'll see all of the body that he needs to you know <laughs> uh, I I I I just I can't. I just He had so okay, and he had so many encounters in his life, and he told McCon Ainsworth that he chose to be alone. He would rather be by himself as an adolescent because he does not understand interpersonal relationships. He doesn't want to have a part of their relationship. He doesn't know what love is. So that's us. And he claimed that he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. Okay, when he said, in quote, I don't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. But some of the classmates from Woodrow Wilson High School told Rod that he was, quote, well-known and well-liked there. A, quote, a medium-sized fish in a large pond. I see what they did there. I mean, he had, well, he's in a sea of many people, but he didn't understand, or he, don't, he doesn't know how to make friends, or he doesn't know how to start a relationship, or somewhere along that line. But, we kind of get, I kind of get that, okay? 
So Bundy's only significant electrification was the only sports that he liked was downhill skiing, which he pursued using the stolen equipment and forged flip tickets. Oh my goodness, he stole some of the equipment and forging the lipstick just to get in. And that's why he obsessed with downskating. And then during the high school, he was arrested twice in unsufficient blurgery and auto theft. Wow, he stole a lot of things and everything, but my goodness. And when he was 18 years old, the details of those incidents were punch on the record as is customary in Washington so man he had arrested that at the early age for doing something stupid like stealing money and stealing cars and oh why not but that's just that particular thing here okay but now I'll get on to the university he graduated from high school in 65 and he attended University of Puget Sound or UPS, for just one year before transferring to University of Washington to study Chinese. And by the 67 he became romantically involved with a UW classmate who was identified by some pseudonyms in his biographies. Most commonly named Stephanie Brooks. And by the early day he dropped out of college and he worked at a series of minimum wage jobs just to keep himself up. And he also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. And he became Arthur Fletcher's driver and a bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for the Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. So he wants Rockefeller to become the president. And then fled the driver becoming a lieutenant governor in Washington State. Okay. And in August, he attended a 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami because he supports uh, Nelson Rockefeller. And then shortly after, Brooks ended the relationship and returned to her family home in California. Oh, that's well, that hurts. Wow, she broke. Wow, she broke up with him, and then she went back to California. And then she, and then he was frustrated by what she described of him being immature and a lack of the ambition that he had to give her. So, we have a psychiatrist, Dorothy Lewis, later point that. This crisis is probably a pitiful time in his development, so this is like a pitiful moment of him. So, and then he was devastated by his rejection. Yeah. He traveled to Colorado and then going down the east, east of the hill, and he visited and he visited some relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia. And enrolling for one semester, just one semester at Temple University. And that was the time in the early 69. And Rule, okay, she believes that he visited the office for birth rack of birth records in Burns and confirmed his true parentage, revealing who 
are their parents are. Where they really are. And he was back in Washington State in the fall of 69. And he met Elizabeth Klobuchar. As he was identified in his literature as MacAnders, Birth Archer, or Liz Kendall. He come up with like a different names. And it was a divorcee. It's a divorcee from Ajahn Utah who worked as like a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And then their relationship would continue on past his incarceration in jail in Utah in 76. And by the time in the mid 70s, he now focused and well, he now re enrolled at UW. This time as a psychology major. And he became an honor student and was regarded by the professors. Well done for him. And in 71, he took a job at Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, where he met and worked alongside Anne Rule. She was a former special. Former Seattle police officer. And she would later write one of Bundy's biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. I mean, so. I mean, Anne Rule created that book, and this is focuses about the serial killer, Ted Bundy himself. She wrote that out. And then she saw nothing disturbing in his personality at the time. And, they, and he described him as kind, solid. Slituous and empathetic. So she created her first biography about Ted Bundy. Right now, let's just say he she describes it as like a nice person. But a little later on, he will he will not be a nice person because she will kill some people, like special warriors. Okay, right. After graduating from UW in 72. He joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. So he's done a lot of re- Done of going for camp, going to campaign, or campaigning this candidate to become whatever, the governor or the president. Opposing this country, he shadowed the end's opponent, former governor, Albert Rosalini, and recorded his thumb speeches for analysis by Evans' team. So. And he appointed Bunny to Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. After he was, after Evans was re-elected, he was now hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, who was the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. So Davis thought, well, well, Bunny, and described him as, quote, smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. I don't know why he, I don't know why Bunny believes this all the system. And by the early 73s, despite the New Yorker SAT scores, oh, I feel bad. He was accepted into the law school of UPS and the University of Utah on the strength of the letter's recommendation for Evans Davis and some several psychology professors. Okay, guys. Um, hi, this is Future Me here. Um, unfortunately, I can't find. The original recordings for the this the portions of the part one. Well, I'm gonna have to re-record this one for you, so well, that will make you happy. I will still be reacting the same thing, okay? So let's do this. Okay, so 
When he was on the trip to California to um, to party during the summer, he rekindled the relationship with books again. So he decided, you know, getting back to this relationship, and she's marveled all the transformation to becoming like a very serious person. It's a part of the legal and political career. So he wanted to continue the date with Clover. Back to time, but neither of them have knowing who they are so the so clover and brooks neither of them they don't know who they are Chance. by the fall of 73 he was matriculated at the law school and concealed corn brooks at that time and then they flew to seattle many times to stay with him and discussed about the marriage and at one point discussed to davis as becoming the fiance but that, that changed in 1974 because he broke of all the contact he had. So he did it. Her phone calls and letters were not returned. And about a month later, she demands to know what, like, why? Why he's not into a relationship? Why is not in a relationship with her anymore, with Brooks? Without knowing it. And then the flat boys, flat and Connor boys, and he said to her, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And just hang up and never heard of him again. That's it. He He's done. He's done with a relationship with her. And then I explained that is because he wanted to prove that he could have married her. But she concluded in this one that he planned this courtship and the rejection because... She broke up with him the first time that they were together. Now, he decided to broke up with her. That was from the 60s. That was almost um, six years. Yeah, this was six years ago that she broke up with him. And now he broke up with her. That's, that's what she gets from breaking up with him for the first time. And then by then, he skipped... Uh, classes at a law school and then by able to stop attending anymore. Because now the young one began to disappear in the Northwest and this is how the murder starts there. Oof. I kinda miss how some of the parts because I have to record this one because this is this was recorded by the way from the original that was April. We're in I'm in July right now so I'm gonna have to look out here. Okay, let's get on to the series of murders now, because it's time for the spree to begin. There is no information about when or where did he kill the woman. Kill women. Tell some of the stories to the people and about the earliest crimes and everything told a little between. Okay. Amy told. Nelson, his first kidnapping started in 69 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until 71. So it told the psychologist Art Norman killed a couple of women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting his family in Philly. He hinted, but he refused to elaborate to Capel, or to Capel, that he committed murder. In Seattle in 72, and then there's another in 73. 
near uh, Tamor. There's like a hitchhiker. So both Rogue and Pal believe that he had started killing as somewhere a teenager. It could be, but he might be, but not it. So some of that suggested they had abducted and killed eight-year-old Burr. That was eight-year-old when he was 1461. And he denied this allegation that he killed an eight-year-old when he was 14. And some of the earliest documents, the homicides were committed started in 74. He's 27, so that was 13 years ago. He had mastered the skills there before this little demon to leave the sign, leave the incriminating evidence and some crime scenes and stuff. No, so that nobody knows that well, he has to clean up some of the mess right there before anyone will notice, see that it was him. Okay. And then shortly in the midnight on January 474, did he ended the relationships. He entered the basement apartment of the 18-year-old Karen Sparks, identified Joey Lance, Mary Adams, Terry Cavo. She was a dancer at a student at UW after bludgeoning. She well, she was a dancer at a student at UW, and she bludgeoned he bludgeoned Sparks senseless with a metal rod in the bed. God, and he sexually assaulted her with that same rod. Of, oh no, I don't. And I don't think that's what I think it is. And it causing some no injuries. Trimming unconscious for about 10 days and he was still survived with the physical elements of the disease, so she won't be dancing anymore. Yeah, that ruined her career for this. In some of the early more hours of February 1st, he broke into the basement of Linda Ann Healy. She is an undergraduate who broadcasts to a weather report for skiers. And he beat her unconscious and dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and just carried her away. Never seen her again. In the first half of 74, we still have female consciousness disappear at the rate of about a one per month. So on March 12, Donna Gill Manson, she's a 19 year old student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles from Seattle, left her dormitory to attend a jazz concert, but she never arrived. And on 17th, sent Elaine Rancourt disappear while her room after an evening advice meeting at the Central Washington State, 100, in Ellsworth, 110 miles southeast Seattle. And then a couple of female Central Washington came to find encounters. So one night of Rancourt's disappearance, and the other three, that's early back then, there's a guy with an arm sling asking for help carrying some of the low books who brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. That's one of his famous cars that he did while he murdered him. And on May 6, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University, Corvallis, where six south from Seattle, have coffee with friends at Memorial Union, and but she never arrived at the time. And then we have the de detectives now coming in play for King County and Seattle. There were concerned about this, and there's no physical evidence, and no missing woman had that little in common. Part that 
young, attractive, white colleges with long hair parted in the middle. So those were the exact descriptions for those who. And on June 1st, we have Brenda Karen Ball. Uh, she's 22. This year, after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien, that is near the airport, Seattle, Seattle to come on that airport. And she was last seen in a parking lot talking to a brown haired man with his arms like That's the same person. That's, that's funny, folks. That goes to that same person, okay? And then in the early hours around June 11, we have George Ann Hawkins. She was banished while walking down into a lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory and her sorority house. And then the next morning, we have three homicide detectives and the criminals combed the entire alleyway on the sword hands and means finding nothing. Nothing in there. So her disappearance was completely publicized, and some of the witnesses came forward to see that there's a man that I'm like, right behind the dormitory. So he's coming after this. It was on crutches and lead casts trying to carry a, a briefcase. That's that's Bundy's thing. And there's one man, oh, there's a woman called that the man asked her to carry the scar with a Volkswagen Beetle. So he used, you know, either the cast, because his cast is this part of, you know, all these killings, and asking somebody to help them, you know, to do what they want to do. So after they accept his help, they just straight up kill him. That's, that's his thing. That is his thing. And Bunny later told Capel that he lured Hawkins to Scar before rendering her unconscious with one big crowbar. A crowbar. And then handcuffed her and drove her to Isiqua, 20 miles east of Seattle, this little suburb. Where he strangled her and spent the entire night with her body. You know, necrophilia. Ugh, I hate that word. Totally. And then he told that she regained consciousness inside his heart and that she had a Spanish test that she thought that she had taken her to help tutor her for the Spanish test. Oh, oh my goodness. I don't know what's wrong her. And then she just, no, she, it's not killed, but she, she was unconscious back then. Now, back being conscious and she forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to take a little test because it's supposed to have a little tutor for... Oh my god. And then for him, it's not funny. For him, it's not funny. But there are some things... There are some people that might say something very odd. Under some of those circumstances. That's what's important to him. And he also said that he returned to the alley when after his abduction and murder. It's in the little very, somewhere in the very midst of it. And he located and gathered her earrings and one of her shoes where he had left them at the parking lot. And left, not seeing anything and such. Just, yep, he admitted to revisiting her corpse on three different occasions. I don't know where he is at. Man, who knows? Okay. And then during that period, he was working on. Working in Olympia as becoming assistant director of Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he wrote a some of the band for women on the rape prevention. But he did not do that because he would do the same thing. 
and they worked as the Department of Agency Service, Department of Emergency Services. Involved in searching for a missing woman. That's a different kind of hint there. But he played this one a lot. He's so smart. And he mandated Carrie Ann Boom. Uh, twice divorced mother two, six years later. And will play part of the poor role on Five Faces Life. So you will have to hear about Carol Boom somewhere in that next episode. Okay, so you will find her. And then we have six women missing. Okay, and then Sparks Brutal being appeared in some of the newspapers and television in Washington, Oregon. And there's a lot of fear along the, all the population. And hitchhacking, the human drop, no, the sharp. Okay. The paucity, and, some, and they could not provide some of the reporters with some information of fearing this, oh, what's going to happen. And all the victims that they were noted, all the victims that the police, all the detectives that were noted here. So the disappearances took all place at night because it's every single night. Going on construction work or a week of midterm or final exams, that's where it goes. And all the victims were wearing either slacks, blue jeans, and the most of the crimes that they were. Signs of man wearing a cast or sling, that's never his thing, and driving a brown or tan, uh, that's his thing. All, no, the sling, the beetle, that represents him, okay? Everything that he did, everything represents him. That's him. And some are Pacific Northwest murders, still culminating on July 14th, with two more women, there's two more women, at front of Crowder Beach, at Lake Shamus State Park in Isaguan. And then five of the witnesses, five of them was described, there's a young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, again, the sling, speaking in a light accent. Oh, he would do such a thing when he little studying himself. He Canadian or British, or he introduced himself as Ted. Ted. That's Ted Bundy there. And then asked their help with unloading some sailboat in a beetle, as always. Four of them were refused, but one of them accompanied him as far as his car, and there's no sailboat in this fled. So, ouch. And we have three witnesses saw him approach Janice Ann Ott. She was 20 years old. It's, she's a probation caseworker at the King County Juvenile Court. No, we didn't know the sailboat story. There's no sailboat. And then watch, they watch her leave on the beach with his comments. And four hours later, we have Denise Marie Naslan. Uh, she's a 19 year old woman who was studying a coming programmer. Ugh, she was well, used to be a programmer because I. Okay. Left in the Ingle service and never returned. So she just went to a restroom no, and. He caught her, and he told both Cod and Hagemeyer that Ott is still alive when he returned to Nazla. He forced one to watch as he murdered the other. Oh, God. But he denied in an interview with Lois on that summer on the eve of his execution, the day before he executed. We have a police finally armed with some description and 
of their suspect and his car. And we have some flyers throughout the Sierra area. And then we have sketch printed in newspapers and broadcasts on station television stations. You'll probably see the photo in the sketch of see the photo because I saw this is the photo. This is the actual photo that I saw. Yeah, this is the car, both the white or tan Volkswagen Beetle that he had ridden. And then we have Clover and Rule, the employee, uh, and the professor. The, everybody recognized this file. Has profiled, sketched the car, and reported him as a pos as a suspect. All those people. Now thinking that, yep, Bundy did it, but somehow detectives using 20 tips. It might be unlikely that a clean lawsuit with no criminal could be the perpetrator. Stupid detectives, they don't know who Bundy is. And in September 6, we have a couple of hunters, some across the skeletal remains of Ott and Nazlin. So we got two of them are now dead. Near somewhere service though in Isikwa, two miles from the state park. We have extra femur and several some of the very found the sites were identified by him as Hawkins, as one of those of Hawkins. And then some forestry students discovered in the skulls of and mandibles. Mandibles is I don't know what the mandibles is. It's like the jaw, the lower jaw. Of Healy Rancor Parks and Ball, somewhere on Taylor Mountain, where he hiked. He frequently hiked there, just a little east of Itiqua. And there were never, and most of the mansions, of the remains, they're not recovered, sadly. Okay, so that's, so those are some of the few women we have between the Washington and Oregon. So that's five states already. That's five states. Okay, now let's get on to, to Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. So we have the next three states coming your way. All right, so in August 74, he received a second sentence from Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Club for Seattle. So he left her, so he's had to go to Utah. And when he called her often, he dated at least a dozen. So dated well, more than other women. He dated, but he's not dating. He just wanted to kill. That's all he wanted to do. It wasn't, he wasn't like, it wasn't like dating. It was just, he would just lure them. Okay, so he studied the first year curriculum a second time. And for what he said, that he found out the other sense of something. So Capacity and there's nothing information. And there's no string of homicides began on that following month, including the two that will remain undiscovered until he confessed them shortly before the investigation. And on September 2nd, he raped a and strangled an unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, so we don't know who that person. And then either dispose remains immediately in the river or return. Next to the photograph and dismember the corpse. So oh, shoot. Jeez. 
And then October 2nd, we have 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, the suburban Salt City. He seized her, and her remains were buried in Capitol Reef National Park, 200 miles south of Holiday, but they were never found. And on October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, she's a 17-year-old daughter of the police chief in Medvale. That's another suburb, okay. After leaving a pizza parlor, oh. And her new was found in some mountainous area nine days later. And the examination indicated that she may have remained alive for about a week following the disappearance. And on October 31st, so this is Halloween day, we have Laura Ann Aim, which is also 17 years old, 25 miles suddenly high after leaving cafe after midnight. So don't go anywhere in the midnight, especially 3 a.m., especially at midnight. So don't go, don't go out anytime around 3 a.m., especially midnight. Midnight's it's almost as bad. And her naked body is found by the hikers nine miles northeast of the American Fork, Fork sorry, American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving. Okay, and both of the women have been beaten, raped, sodomized, strangled with the nylon stockings. That's useful, like. And seventy years later, he described this rituals in the courses of the time, including hair shampooing and an application of makeup. This is like a a funeral or something, but this is not the funeral that he wanted to create. So, right. okay. In the late afternoon of November 8, he approached 18 year old teleoperator, Carol Deronk, Deronch, okay, at a fashion place on Murray, less than a mile from the Midville restaurant where Smith was last seen. And then he identified himself as. Officer Roseland okay, of the police department. And he told her that someone had intended to bring him to a car and then he asked her to come with him to file no complaint. And when she pointed out that he was driving on the road that was not leading to the police station, no. He may pull him to the shoulder and then attempted to handcuff her. I think she remember it. And during their struggle, he fastened both handcuffs to that same wrist and she was able to open the car and he escaped. Oh, she escaped. Woof. There you go, the wrong. And then later that time, Deborah Jean Kent, she's 17-year-old from Dumont in Bonneville, 20 miles from Murray. She was disappeared after leaving a theater production to pick up her brother. And then the drama teacher and the told the police that a stranger had asked each both of them to come out into the parking lot to identify another car. And another student saw that man pacing the rear of the auditorium, so sorry in the back of the auditorium, and responding him again shortly before then that will play. And then outside the auditorium, the investigation, the, outside that auditorium, they found the key that unlocked the handcuffs that removed from the wrong wrist. Oh, that's a little evidence for there. And somewhere in November, Elizabeth Clover, that's one of his wife, called a police the second time before reading the young woman were disappearing somewhere in Townsend, Salt Lake City. And it would detective writing her.
Bird Jemire of the crimes interviewed her as more detail. By then, he had risen considerably the area of the suspicion, but the shaman's witness considered a reliable by the attempt and failed to identify him for the whole line. Oh, then he got away with it. And in December, she called a Salt Lake Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions that, yep, that funded. But his name was added now to the list of suspects. And there's no forensic evidence that linked it to his crimes. And in 75, he returned to Seattle after the final exams. And now, he has time to spend a week with Hooper. And he did not told him that she reported, she had reported him to police on those occasions. And she made plans to visit him in the Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City until in August. Okay, and by 1975, but this is where going along. He shifted from this criminal activity somewhere eastward from Utah now to Colorado. Okay, and now on January 12, she's a 23 year old registered nurse, Carolyn I mean Campbell, uh, disappeared while walking down to a hallway between the elevator and her room in a Wildwood Inn. Well, Wildwood Inn, now it's called Wildwood Lodge. In Snowmass Village, 400 miles, sorry, sorry. Her new buddies found a month later next to a dirt road, just a little outside that resort. And she had been killed by blows her head from a blunt instrument, that's a bludgeon bag or something, that left a linear groove depression on the skull that he had hit her. And her body has also had like deep cuts from that sharp weapon. Oh, God. And then on March 15th, a uh, hundred miles northeast of us, we have Vail ski instructor named Julie Cunningham. She's 26. This beer while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. So she's got a little dinner to do. And then Bunny told the investigator scholar and figured that he approached Cunningham, so her, on crutches and asked her to help carry Skibitz to his car. Now again, that's the crap. Scratches is another his thing. His Skibitz, that's also his thing because he had that when he was little. Okay. And he clubbed and handcuffed her, handcuffed her in the salt and strength her at the oof, secondary site near a little rifle. 90 miles was a bail. And the weeks later, he made a six hour drive going from Salt Lake to revisit the remains that he had done. And then we have Denise Lynn Oliverson. She was disappearing near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bike to her parents' And her bike sandals were found under the viaduct, a railroad bridge. And on May 6th, he lured a 12-year-old, Lynette Don Culver, from another junior high school in Pocatello, Idaho, 106 miles from he drowned and then sexual assaulted her in his hotel room okay, before disposing of her body somewhere in the river. Snake. That's Snake. North of Pocatello. Right, so we have. And then, remember, I told you to discuss about well, some of the bands that he had done, that he had killed. 
this is all definitely in order and file out with a lot of people here. I have a lot of women that listen down. Okay, and so we're in May, three of the co-workers, boom, visited him a Salt Lake City and stayed for a whole week in the world. And he spent a week in Seattle with Clover in early June. And discussed about getting married the following Christmas, so that's December of 75, I believe. And again, she made no mention of the discussions with the police or the sheriff's office. She doesn't tell him that she reported him to those offices. But he disclosed neither of this relationship with Boone or romance with the lawsuit. No one's on the account as Kim Andrews or Sharon Arr. Arr. I don't know what the name is, but we'll, we'll get to that. All right, then let's get back to more kill. Okay, so on June 28th, uh, Susan, Curtis, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus in Birmingham, Young, University in Provo, 45 miles south of Sully. Her murder became his last confession. This is his last confession before he was executed. And the bodies of Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Oliverson, Culver, and Curtis, they were never covered. They were never covered at all. Okay. And in August or September, or somewhere in August, September, and soon he was baptized to a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And he was non active participant in services. And now he was excommunicated by the church following the conviction so they knew this conviction would happen so he no longer being part of that church anymore. that's us and we asked his preference he answered Methodist it was a Methodist I knew that this Methodist is not the same as Catholic okay or the Christian, I know it's part of Christianity, but Catholic is a little different than that. So, yeah, never date somebody with a Methodist who can also have to kill women. So, don't be that person, like Bundy. And somewhere in Washington State, some investigators were starting to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that ended, but uh, it's still begun again. That makes sense of no. How much the mass data he had done, and they resorted to well, the strategy of compiling database of how he murdered, and they used a payroll computer within the machine by the extenders. There's only one that's available to them, and they inputting many lists they had compiled from the classmates and acquaintances of each of those victims, and the Volkswagen owners named Ted, Sepfender, so on, so they putting all those lists in the query, that one, for some coincidence. And out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on the floor of those lists. And one of them is him, Ted Bundy. And they made a compile list of the 100 best suspects. And he was on the list. So, and he was at the top of the pile of all the suspects where came from his arrest and such. So, they found out now, so they have to compile every single computer and then make sure all the queries make sure that it was him. And he killed these victims. 
and his car is Volkswagen Beetle. So that they found him. Gotcha. We found that person and he killed least amount of people that they had. Cool. We found it. Okay. So let's get down to the rest in the first trial. Oh, but before we do that, man, there's a lot of things you have to think about to the bunny because he killed these women, but this is not this, these are not the ones that he had killed. There will be more when that came from. So you'll find it. You'll find it. Okay. So let's get on to some of the rest and the first try that he did. Okay. On August 16th of 1965, he was arrested at the Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger. And he observed him cruising a residential area in some of the pre-dawns and fleeing at the high speed at the single patrol. He noticed the front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the, some of the rear seats and searched you know, the car. And he found ski masks. There's a second mask fashion from a penthouse that would strangle. A crowbar, just handcuffs, trash bags. Trash bag is like putting a corpse. A roll, roll call a rope that it could be something. An ice pick. It could be an ice pick. And some other items that he used for his tools. And he explained that the ski mask was for skiing, because that's what he uses. He found some of the handcuffs in somewhere in the dumpster. And then the rest were some of the household items that he bring. Well, that he that he brought. However, we have Detective Jerry Thumbs remembered the suspect and the car description from that 74 the wrong kidnap. And his name was from his wife from his wife. I don't know, it's fine. Well first seven ninety-four phone call from the phone call that she had done. And in search of his apartment, he found a guide to ski resorts and a check mark for the will within. That's one of the things that he did before. And a little brochure that advertised the high school play where Kent had disappeared. So again, definitely heard her before. And they have not they did not have like sufficient evidence. Not they don't have like a good evidence. Detain him, but he was released. And he said that he had, he said that the searchers had missed that collection of the photographs, Polaroid photos of the victims, which he destroyed after he was released. He just burned all the photos down so that he doesn't, so doesn't want to see all that stuff. Okay. And then we have the police place him on surveillance surveillance and tons of loot to in Seattle with two detectives to interview her. And she told him that a year before he moved to Utah, she had discovered some of the objects that she could not understand she refused in her house and in, in his apartment. And those eyes were crutches, that's the usual thing, a plaster, a bag of plaster pairs that Stealing from 
a spy house, middle spy house, and a meat cleaver. It was never used for cooking, it was for something else. Just, you know, cut it up. And some of the additional objects in surgical gloves, a knife, packed in a wooden case, keeping this stuff. And sack of all of women's clothing. But he was particularly in debt, and then she suspected that, yep, he had stolen all the stuff that he possessed, that he owns those. And then when she confronted him over the new TV stereo, he warned her, and he said, he said this, quote, if you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. And then she said him became, she was very upset. Whenever she's cutting her hair or somewhere. And she's awake in the middle and I find him under the bed covers with a little flashlight examining the little body. And she kept a lug wrench. There's a wrench coming away. Tap halfway in the middle and then in the trunk of the car. There's another Volkswagen because that she wrote. He borrowed for protection. That's not for protection. It's just a little hit. Yep, those, I just look up the right there, the photos, those are all the photos. All the things that he had done somewhere in that little book track. And there's confirmed that he had not been with her from any of the nights during the of the victims that they Or nor on the day that Ott and Nuzlan were abducted. And then somewhere shortly after, she was interviewed by the homicide detective, Captain Chenzi, learned the existence of Brooks and her engagement to Bundy somewhere around Christmas. So that was the first relationship with him, first time. Now she's with Clover, so this is the one that she ratted out on him. In the summer of September, he sold his beetle to a teenager. But the police impounded it and commissioned this man to search it. So they had to break it down and find it. And then I found some of the hairs matching the samples of Campbell's body. And it also identified the strands that was in the description for Melissa Smith and The Rock. And we have the specialist, Robert Neal, include some of the hair strands. Three of those victims who never met. It's definitely a coincidence. So they had never met each other before. They're just one girl at a time. So we met it one on one. So yeah, this is everything that goes through on there and figure out what that is. And this is all that stuff he did. And on the sober second, they put him into a part of the lineup. The rock is immediately identifying him as Officer Rosemary. That's really him. And so the witnesses from the Bountiful recognized him as a stranger at the auditorium. And there was a evidence linking him to Kent. Okay. And there was more than enough in the charging with the kidnapping and sent some criminal assault in Ronk, the Ronch case. And he was free 15000 in bail, paid by all his parents, and spent most of time between the indictment and trial somewhere in Seattle, living in her house. Ugh, I don't know why. So now he paid fifteen thousand for all the killings, and now he's released. I don't know, such an idiot that is. Ugh. And the police had some insufficient 
evidence. Hold on, the problem here. Charge him with uh, murder, specific murders. The captain surveillance. So they're keeping an eye on him. And then she wrote, quote, when Ted and I stepped into the porch to go somewhere, so many armored police cars started at the sound of the indie fire. So this is somewhere like a race of catching up on him. So yep, these police here, they are coming after them. No, they're coming after him. And in November, we have the investigators, three, three investigators, Jared Thompson Utah, Robert Capel from Washington and Michael Fisher from Colorado. All them met in Aspen and exchanged some information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from the Vikings. And they left the meeting convinced that he was the murderer that they saw. And they agreed that there's a lot of hard evidence that would be needed before he would be charged with the murder. So yeah, they're now coming his ass. That's what basically. So they have everything they need, find some evidence that, yep, Bundy was the one who killed all these women. Okay, that's one. And in February 76, he stood trial for the wrong kidnapping. And then on the advice of the attorney, John O'Connell, he was waived his right due to some publicity. Now, after four days of that trial, the weekend deliberation, we have Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found guilty of kidnapping and assault. And in June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. Now, so he was found hiding somewhere in the Bush prison yard as, like, escape. He had the roadmaps, airline schedules, and some of the social security card that he will be used. And several weeks in that solitary confinement where he had to spend a lot of time. And later, he, the authorities charged him with the Campbell's murder. And after the results, he waived the extradition scene. It was transferred to Aspen in 77. Oof. I mean, he's really good at escaping. That's why I'm going to be honest with you. He's really good at escaping. you see. Okay. Now, let's get on to the escapes. So this is where the escapes, and this is where we're going to pick up. And then June 7th of 19, he was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs Hitkin Courthouse for a preliminary hearing. He was elected to serve as zone attorney, so he would be. And, and as he was executed by the judge from wearing handcuffs and leg shackles, he asked to visit some of the courthouse library to research the case. When he shielded from the guard view behind the hole, he opened and jumped to the ground from that second story. Oh, Injuring the right angle and he landed. This is where he tried to escape from some such. The trains on the outlier of the building. Walked through as some rope lost and then being sent up to Soren Outskirts. And then hiked to Aspen Mountain. Near he broke into a cabin and stole some of the food, including in the rifle that he needed. And then finally he left the cabin and did somewhere south of Preston Bottle, but he lost. He was lost somewhere in the forest. And in two days, he wandered around the mountain, missing two trails that led down to no, where he wanted to where to go. And on June, on June 10th, he broke into a trailer, a camping trailer, in like 10 miles. 
He took food and the street park. Instead of going down somewhere, he walked back north to Aspen and looted some of the roadblocks and the search parties on the way because they, ooh, they're gonna find him. And three years later, he stole a car at the edge of the golf course. He was cold, sleep deprived, and he was constipated from the sprained ankle. Oh, that's terrible, friend. He drove back to Aspen where two of the police officers noticed the car waving in out of the lane and pulling over. He was being a fugitive for almost a week. And there were maps in the mountain area around Aspen. And the prosecutors were using them to straighten out Campbell's body. That was before, okay. Indicating that this cave was not an act. But he had been planning this, but that's not the act he wanted to do. So, yep, he went back to jail. So that sucks for him. <laughs> back to Glenwood again. And he ignored the advice of the friends and the advice, you know, the safer. The kids were already against him and he was weak. Okay. Instead, he assembled a new escape plan. He decided to, you know, try to make it an escape plan. Acquired a floor plan of the little jail and a hacksaw blade from some other inmates. And he has $500 in cash. Not to get smuggled in the six months. And instead of the visitors, we have Boo and the Pittsburgh. That's him. Jared Ennis, while the others were showering, he saw the entire hole about one square foot between the steel and the four students and the bars in the ceiling. His ceiling was also. And lost 35 pounds because he was going to have to go through that hole to get him out of there and wriggle through that little space. And made a little series of runs, exploring the space of where he is. And then multiple reports from that moment with the nights where they were not investigated. And by the late 77, his trial had become a cost libre in Aspen. And then he had filed a motion for venue to Denver, so he wanted to change it. And on October 23rd, on the 723rd, the judge granted the request, but to Springs, Congress where jurors had been hostile. And then on the 9th of the 30th, where most of the staff is on Chris Sprague and not a lot of business are in the furlough with their families, he piled all the books and files on his bed and then covered them all up to simulate his sleeping body where he's used to sleep and climbed into that space and it broke through some of his ceiling department and who was out for the evening. Okay, he was changed into some of the street clothes from the those closet and walked out to freedom. So yep, he escaped. He jumped from that second window from the part of left and he escaped from it. And then yeah. After his little car he drove to the eastward in Springs, Glenwood Springs, but the car had been broke down on the interstate ceremony. Okay. And then we have motors gave him a little ride to Vail, 60 miles east. Where he caught a bus to Denver, okay, and he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. And back to Glenwood Springs, the skeleton crew did not discover the escape. They did not know the escape until noon on 
New Year's Eve. That's more than 17 hours for that. And by then, he was in Chicago. And that is where we picked up next week. Yep, that's the end. That will be the end of part one, guys. That's really cool. So, yeah, this is where left off. He finally had all the kills he needed. And they knew who he is. Who he is. He got caught. He was in jail, but he was trying to escape from somewhere in Aspen, Glenwood. And he managed to escape, and he's out now. He's in Chicago. I don't know where he's going next. But I will tell you right now where he's going because he would be traveling the train to Michigan. So he'll be going to Michigan and then he will be going to Atlanta. And then after that, he'll be on the way to Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, to be specific. That's why I'm going to tell you more a little spoiler for you just to give you guys the next episode. And yeah, this is that's where we left off for. The part one. And yeah, he has done a lot of things. Some of the crazy things that he did. So yeah, that's the end of the part one. And I will see you next time for part two of him, of Bundy. All right, guys. Goodbye and take care.